The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, creatives, entrepreneurs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It was very fulfilling, but it just kept nagging me. I saw my friends starting to go through this, and I knew what they were dealing with. And I just kept thinking, why is there nowhere to turn for this? And so I started doing research. I had no idea about these aging demographics. Some people call it the silver tsunami. These baby boomers, the number of people over 80 is tripling in the next three decades. The story of NeighborForce, the four-year-old venture-backed startup connecting older adults with people in the community, kind of like backup daughters and sons. In related news, the clock on mom and dad's VCR has been blinking nonstop since 1995. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining us, we are recording at the University of Richmond's Robin School, is Paige Wilson. She is founder and CEO of Four-Year-Old Neighbor Force. It bills itself as the Uber of help for seniors, bridging the gap between independence and care. Neighbor forces in Virginia, Maryland, and Texas. And again, it's only four years old and grabbing headlines. You can read about it in Forbes and Inc. all across the board. How are you, Paige? I'm doing great this afternoon. Thank you for coming on. I've been thinking about this. We did an episode with a daughter in Northern Virginia who had to take care of her mother who was in memory care and the many awful things she learned about the system and the safety net in the final two years of her mother's life. And you have this startup here, which is getting headlines. I have a friend who works for you in our circles. I Clearly, my father is aging. We have neighbors who are aging. I know the many boomers and their children who are kind of sandwiched in between generations. And certainly, this has been put in sharp relief by the pandemic, where many of us has counted on our in-laws and our parents to help us take care of children. We are increasingly taking care of our parents and grandparents. Absolutely, You are in a sweet but uncomfortable spot. Yes. And by the way, there are a lot of people that are taking care of children and parents. Those are the sandwich caregivers. But Mm. yes, we are in this position where as the country ages, 11,000 baby boomers are turning 65 every single day. And, you know, as we age, sometimes we start to slow down and we might need a hand here and there. And throughout history, we've always relied on family as that first line of defense, either family or friends or neighbors. But families are more dispersed. They've moved away. They're busier. They're sandwiched, still raising children. So it creates a lot of demand for what we're doing. I remember I was per- I was at a personal finance magazine at the turn of the century, and we used to have people visiting us, investors talking about the great future for artificial hips and knees, considering aging baby boomers. And now they're at a certain age where really the care matters, and you can't take anything for granted. All that stands between someone and maybe economic ruin is a fall. Absolutely. That's how Neighbor Force started, by the way. So I spent the bulk of my career in finance roles, mostly in Richmond, Virginia, and mostly in large corporate environments. But about 10 years ago, my mom broke her hip, and that was the beginning. All of a sudden, she started needing just little bits of help, 
Maybe it was getting her to the beauty parlor. Maybe it was helping set up the bridge table. The one that I detested the most was reprogramming the remote. (laughs) And I was the alpha daughter. I lived five minutes from my mom, loved her to pieces, and wanted to help her with all those things. But I had this demanding career. I was raising a teenage daughter. I was widowed young, so I was a single parent. And I just couldn't be there all the time. Tell us about that. You were a full speed ahead banker back in this iteration. Absolutely. I was an investment banker at the time. So I traveled a lot. And like I said, I I lived very close to my mom and we were very, very close. My mother was widowed young. So we're a bunch of strong, independent women, but I couldn't be there. And I could see that she didn't even like asking. She felt like a burden. She Mm. knew I had my own life and that I was busy. And so I started looking for backup only to find there really was nothing. Once she got to the point that she needed an aide or a nurse, say home care or home health, lots of options. But she didn't need that yet. It was pretty binary. Aid, Absolutely. Aid versus, you know, outside assisted living she versus She didn't need nothing. a babysitter. She didn't need yeah. somebody in scrubs sitting there for four to eight hours. Literally, she just needed, I kept saying, another me. I have a brother, but you know how that goes sometimes. Couldn't count on him. And so really, I just kept thinking, I, I just need a, a, a clone, another me. I want to push a button and somebody like me shows up to help. Paige, can you explain for our listeners what the extent of the social safety net is for older people in 2023? I mean, Social Security, Medicare, various other things. We generally don't like to think about how we'll pay for long-term care. or It is it is nearly bankrupted several companies that didn't fully prepare for it, the, kind of the actuarial table. So it's kind of blindsided a generation. But what have you learned or what can you and can you not take for granted in terms of what you put away? Yes, it's very expensive aging. It's not for sissies. (laughs) Now, the good news is today's seniors, at least a portion of them, have a lot of resources. So 56 cents of every dollar spent today is by somebody over 65. And 83% of household wealth is held by seniors. But there's also a lot of poverty. I just left the Commonwealth Council on Aging meeting. And in the state of Virginia, over 10% of people over 65 are below the poverty level. So that's very, very tough. And governments are struggling to come up with solutions for that. And it stems with everybody wants to age in their home. That's number one. We build communities around us and we want to stay there as we age, but it becomes more and more difficult. And so while there are more and more solutions to help people age in their home and different senior living options, there is a period of time where people need what we're doing, which is really just that helpful hand from a neighbor for an hour or two. And that can make huge difference in somebody staying in their home. What does a social security cover in the grand scheme of things? I know a lot of people wait to get to Medicare age, but social security, if you were taking that for granted, or if you didn't fund a 401k or an IRA for most of your life, what in your experience has been the contribution or the backstop or safety net of social security? I'm not an expert on any of that, to be honest. And neighbor force is private pay as most in-home services are, even when you start at home care, it's not covered by insurance, by the way. So it is very expensive. Living in a senior living community, the average cost is almost $7,000 a month. Mm. So I doubt Social Security is covering the bulk of that for most people. And a lot of this is precipitated, as you say, by a fall. There are very uh, tough-minded seniors out there who've been independent all their lives. They don't want to count on people. Maybe their kids are in Phoenix Sure. Or Miami, but something happens in the bathtub or on wet leaves in the backyard. Yeah, sometimes that's the catalyst, but it can be all kinds of things. Maybe they have macular degeneration. They've given up driving. Uh, maybe we have a, a doctor who's 97 who's a client, and he's 
fully capable of doing everything but bending over and taking out his recycling can Mm -hmm. to the curb. So he has a neighbor that helps with that. And we have all the time, our clients, average age is 83. 80% are still living in their home. That's where they want to be. So take me back to the experience with your mother and the genesis of Neighbor Force and the idea and what you had to do kind of as a very strong-minded woman helping another strong-minded woman (laughs) and the pieces you had to put together as a banker. We know banker hours are crazy. You're traveling, working on deals left and right. How did you cobble that together? It was very, very challenging. And, you know, our parents raise us. And so helping them as they age is one of the greatest things that we can do for them and for ourselves. So it was very fulfilling, but it was also very straining. And again, I didn't really want her to feel like she was a burden. So I tried to hide that from her. And there came a point in time where I was lucky. I worked for a large employer and I actually took family medical leave for four weeks and I was in a producer role. So that was pretty tough, but they were supportive because something had to give between my mom and my job and my daughter. So we got through it. But she ended up going on hospice and she was on hospice for a couple of years. That was a long, tough period. So after she passed away, I changed jobs. I moved cities. I needed a fresh break. Threw myself into this investment banking job and I loved it and it was great and I made a lot of money and it was very fulfilling, but it just kept nagging me. I saw my friends starting to go through this and I knew what they were dealing with. And I just kept thinking the time when I was going through it, why is there nowhere to turn for this? And so I started doing research. I had no idea about these aging demographics. Some people call it the silver tsunami. Mm -hmm. These baby boomers, the number of people over 80 is tripling in the next three decades. Now, I've been told by gerontologists that's ageist, so we don't want to say silver tsunami. It's an age wave, Mm -hmm. a demographic shift. But clearly, this was a growing problem. Then you coupled in some of the demographics I saw about family caregivers. Literally, the number of family caregivers is dropping in half between now and 2050. And it's because boomers had smaller families. I had one daughter, right? And so armed with that, I really started thinking about how do we bridge these people between when they're fully independent and when they start needing traditional care, that piece that I went through with my mother. Why, and Why am I reminded of the extended family in Willy Wonka and the chocolate <laughs> factory with grandpa and grandma? Or if I'm looking back at Little House on the Prairie, is this, is this kind of hokey for me to think of? Time was before all of these safety nets and interventions and family leave, we would live with extended family or there would Absolutely. be a bigger family in an agrarian age that would help take care of the older people or maybe assume the deed on the house or something like that. Yes. And that's still happening. And it's interesting. It's culturally, different cultures treat it differently. But I think today's older adults are more independent and they don't want to feel like they're having to rely on their family for all of those things. And so, you know, that's where we come in. But as I was putting together kind of the case for this, two things happened that were all of a sudden an aha moment, made it clear as day. So I really wasn't looking to solve this per se. I just was interested in it. Uh And I had moved to Washington, D.C., taking this new job after my mom died. And after having lived in Richmond my my whole life, I thought, well, gosh, I need to get involved in the community. So what can I do that is not a big commitment? Meals on Wheels seemed like the perfect answer. Mm. One day a week, hey, I like old people. That'll make me feel good. Give back in the community. Well, the problem was Meals on Wheels said, great, we'd love to have you. Do you want to sign up for every Wednesday or every Friday? Well, I couldn't commit to every anything because I had this big job and I traveled all the time. So that was a little disappointing. And then not long after that, I was talking to someone in Richmond and a friend of mine, and she 
let on that she was driving for Uber. And I thought, well, that's interesting. She used to be a lawyer. And I said, so what, what's that about? And she said, you know, Paige, I left my law career several years ago to finish raising my two boys. They're now in college. And I wake up in the morning and I'm a little bit lost. I have no purpose. I'm used to helping people. I don't want to go back to my law career. That ship has sailed. And to be honest, I don't really want a part-time job because even though it's part-time, it's scheduled. Mm. And I'm 52 years old and I love where I've earned this right to do what I want when I want. And so Uber lets me, I've got an afternoon free, I go out and I can talk to people. And that really was the light bulb because I thought, wait, I bet there are a lot of people like her or like me, that if they could do it an hour or two a day when it suited them, they might step in and be that backup son or daughter. And you know, that reminds me of Paige. Suddenly, light bulb went off. I took an Uber to the airport, I think it was four years ago, from somewhere in Glen Allen to Richmond Airport. And the driver conceded to me, he had his real estate signs in the back of the Toyota. And he says, I only take the long airport assignments because I want idea generation and potential client leads and housing leads, like places that I can buy and market. And I cherish that 40-minute conversation. Sure. And I realized this person didn't have to do it, but looked at it as a flex of the new gig and freedom economy. And do you see what I'm saying? I yeah. said he didn't have to do it, and he'd like to do it two days a week and only took the long uh, gigs. He didn't want driving you know, uh, drunk college sophomores yeah. between the bar and the campus, but wanted the long airport rides. Met investment bankers, got heads ups on maybe companies that were relocating dozens of people from Connecticut sure. to over here. And so then a light bulb went off, like all manner of people are using this gig economy to unlock for fresh unlocks in their lives. Sure. And I would say our neighbors are a little bit different and we're kind of very fortunate in this. And when we went through capital raise, we can talk about it. Our retention cohort analysis, the investment bankers, these venture capitalists had never seen such high retention. And the reason is our neighbors, that's what we call these helpers, N-A-B-O-R-S, and they are neighbors because they're matched in proximity. They are doing this just a couple hours a week. Their primary motivation is purpose and connection. Just like my friend who wanted to drive Uber, it's not really about the money. So they're not serving as a neighbor one afternoon and then doing Instacart the next day. Mm. This is, in their mind, a way of giving back into the community, maybe paying it forward. Most of them either went through it with their own parents or they see it coming or their parents live far away. Our average neighbor is 54 years old. So it's a lot of empty nesters and retirees. We have neighbors as old as 80. Mm. And they pitch in and lend a hand to another neighbor. And so, like you said, families used to be kind of that first safety net, but so were neighbors, right? We always ask, did the neighbor help you do something or pick your kids up from soccer? And so communities just aren't as close-knit as they used to be. And so what Neighbor Force is doing is this, our platform makes it easy and safe to get a neighbor to lend you a hand. We can all use a hand. doesn't really matter what age we are. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Paige Wilson. She is founder and CEO of Neighbor Force. It is the four-year-old uh, startup that bills itself as the Uber of help for seniors, bridging the gap between independence and care, now in Virginia, Maryland, and, and newly in Texas. What are the first cities in Texas you're on? Uh, Dallas. We just announced Dallas and Fort Worth will be right on its heels. They are two separate markets, and they like to make sure people know that. Paige, take me back to the exact aha moment. Maybe it was on a plane or on a long drive somewhere or late night, you know, delayed Uber back from an airport where you said, I got to get this down on paper and build a pitch deck? It really was after talking to my friend mm -hmm. 
And that was, that coupled with me wanting to work for Meals on Wheels or something, I thought, this feels like the exactly what I was looking for when I went through this with my mother. And so, yes, I did it on a napkin. And at the time, I was pretty confident that the demand is huge. Yeah. And it is. So the questions that I needed to prove to myself were, will the market buy into this kind of Uber-like idea that you're not hiring a care worker? These are not care workers. They're neighbors. And on demand, you're not interviewing them. You got to trust in the vetting process. So will they buy into that and willing to pay for it? And then secondly, can we find these people to do this, these neighbors? And so I did a PowerPoint first time in my life that I'd done a PowerPoint because I had people who had people. Investment bankers <laughs> always get people to do elaborate PowerPoints I and Excel now, spreadsheets exactly, for them. In my 50s, I became an expert. But I flew to Atlanta and I resigned from my job and I did not tell them why because we had this non-compete garden leave where you got paid for 90 days and that was part of my seed money plus my bonus. So they thought I was crazy when they finally found out what I was doing. Do you mind if I ask if you were privately kind of trying to squirrel away savings in anticipation of this leap of faith? Absolutely. Did you have sleepless nights? Um, Tell us. do all the time. (laughs) Yeah, there were a couple times, many, many times, but in the very beginning, just thinking, what have I done? I had this great career that I was earning a lot of money and not independently wealthy. So I was building this nest egg and I stepped away from it all. But I so believed in, one, the opportunity, but the need for what we're doing. And every single time I have a sleepless night or just question this, I'm telling you, I talk to a client, I get a text from a neighbor, I read an email. And when we see what these connections are doing for these people, it's unbelievable. The older adults, they love having a neighbor. They don't want to ask their parent, their kids all the time. Uh, They love making new friends. Everybody's built to connect. Our Surgeon General says that human connection is is essential as breathing, and COVID certainly taught us that. Then you hear from the families, the adult kids like me that are so appreciative. Their parents are happy. They get to spend quality time with them. They don't feel guilty. They can stay in their job. And then you have these neighbors, and that's probably been the biggest surprise to me, the people helping. It's amazing. We see the best side of humankind every single day, hundreds of times a day, because we're doing hundreds of visits in our markets. And there are these wonderful people who are doing this on average four to six hours a week. So you knew throughout in the leap of faith to this startup that you would be backed by really uh, inexorable numbers. Again, the demand on families anticipated to grow further. 11,000 baby boomers turn 65 every day through at least 2030. By 2050, the number of people over 80 is projected to triple. Correct. That's inexorable. It's inevitable. And on on the qualitative side, you and I and everyone knows someone who's had a trying ordeal with caregiving. Sure. Could be a younger person, could be an older person, could be a disagreement with a sibling. We're dispersed. Again, Miami, Phoenix, the diaspora is everywhere in the country. Macular degeneration has visited my family. A hip injury has visited everyone we knew. Cancer heart disease, memory care, to say sure. nothing of the, you know, and and we're blessed as a society to be entering our 80s and our 90s, which didn't happen in 1900 often. More chronic diseases as you get older. And neighbor force isn't addressing any of that piece. We've got a great system in the healthcare world. Right. But people still need little bits of help. And we tell seniors all the time, just because you need help doesn't mean you're helpless. We need help. I need a neighbor to help me get my Christmas tree in the stand. Sure. Right. So- 
that's really the idea. I've been, I've been of helping my parents with the VCR for forty years. But anyway, that's really uh, you know, yes, exactly. <laughs> what do they call us? The VCR blinking generation. Every time you come back from college, like I don't know what to do with this now that no. the VCR has been obviated. But what specifically to get down to brass tacks and you know put on like the VC pitching side here? What is the leverage in the model in addition to the soft leverage of people want to be with a mission driven company? People who've experienced this. What are you saying? Like you had a light bulb go off with the gig economy that there is a tremendous demand and a disconnect on one end, and there's a tremendous kind of dormant supply of willing, helpful people. Absolutely. So you were going to bridge the two? Mm -hmm. To that end, you needed seed funding? How did it work initially? Like you thought to yourself, if I just hire this many proof of concept people? Right. So my idea was this needs to be on demand for people who just need an hour here, two hours there. And because of all those small transactions, it's only going to work with technology. So in the beginning, I built a little mini tech platform on open source software to test this, Mm -hmm. which was great. Operated on that for a little over a year. And once I had proven to myself first before other people's money that there were clients that needed it, they were willing to hire people through this platform, and then we've got plenty of people to do it. Then I went out and raised, started raising capital to build the technology. And it's a very intricate system because the real backbone of it is this scheduling algorithm that's making sure the right neighbor is with the right client at the right time. You are a sophisticated founder. So you came from finance. You had this personal family experience. You knew meeting other founders who exited and everything and had investment banking and wealth management demands that a lot of VCs are going to want to take out your hide at the very beginning. (laughs) Well, yes, they do. And it's very difficult. Like you're desperate for capital. You're desperate for proof of concept. Programmers are not cheap. That's right. The initial proof of concept workforce is not cheap. Marketing out of the gate, PR and everything is not cheap. That's right. You haven't paid yourself for several years. That's not cheap. How did you go into this with a tremendous amount of faith saying, if I only build out a really robust app? Right. It's kind of one step at a time. I need to prove this. Then I'm going to prove this piece of it. Then I'm going to prove that piece of it. And if you study kind of the lean startup methodology, you don't spend money on marketing. If the founder can't sell this product or service, it probably cannot be sold. So for the first year, it was just me. I was building this little platform and getting out in the community and trying to make these matches and, and grow the company. Um, and it was- But we're ambushed hard. with all these ads back in the day for Angie's List, which is now, I think, Angie, or other areas go on and, and see this kind of peer-to-peer. I went to business school with the founder of Yelp. And I remember when he contacted me that summer, he was thinking of dropping out and saying, I'm thinking of starting up this thing. I said, sounds like a poor man city searcher Zagat survey. I didn't see it. Right. Certain people saw it and they knew that this wave of the app economy and everything was coming. And parallel to you was this inexorable demographic wave. Sure. Yeah. It seemed as clear as day to me. Now, making it into reality is is the hard part. I think the business model absolutely is the right model. And one thing, we've made a million mistakes. I've made, not we, mostly me making these decisions, but through the last four years. But one thing that's interesting with neighbor force is typically the hard part of a startup in the beginning is getting, they call it product market fit. Mm -hmm. Are you giving the customer what they really want? And so you hear about the pivot. Well, we pivoted this way, we pivoted that way and, and keep iterating until you've got the right product or service. We haven't changed one bit from the very first day. The name has changed, but in that first PowerPoint that I put together, we said, right in your neighborhood, right by your neighbors, right when you need it. And that's exactly what we're doing today. Full disclosure, stay with us. 
Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate about us, tell your aunt about us. And my DMs are always open if you too would like to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Shout out to our radio listeners across the great Commonwealth on NPR member station WVTF, Radio IQ. If you are just joining us, my guest is Paige Wilson, founder and CEO of NeighborForce, billing itself as the Uber of help for seniors. It's only four years old. So boom, you're telling us about the story of rolling out this app, how you've been very fortunate to not have to pivot or pivot aggressively originally from the original conceit that you took from your experience with your mother of, I wish I had extra me or extra brothers or sisters on demand. How did you roll out the app? How did you get the word out, customer acquisition? Word of mouth, even after four years, is still number one for us because, as you can imagine, it, it's trust-based. Mm-hmm. We're sending, in theory, it sounds like a stranger to help your parents. Now, they're fully vetted. Strangers are coming into our houses all the time, so we're actually safer than a neighbor. Our neighbors have been fully vetted and insured and so forth. So really, the biggest challenge for us is how do we get that word out because we are in a total white space. There's nothing else like us out there. And so most either seniors or family members aren't even Googling for what we do because they don't know they have this option. And that's really, really hard. And I was told it's going to be tough being in a white space. But if you can own it, right? We've white had space VCs being say, brand new, brand new, blue sky. nobody else isn't exactly blue ocean, blue sky. And we had one VC this spring say, you know, I'm this close to saying that you're the next Airbnb. I think you figured out a way to harness this workforce of these community-minded people who aren't really motivated by money and competing with the gig economy. So that is the hardest part, is making people aware that this is an option. How did you scale? Technology is the first piece. Obviously, we had to get the tech in place. So we've got these hundreds of clients demanding or requesting a neighbor every day. And so we've got to have the technology to make all this matching work. Obviously, some of the times we're taking our clients to a doctor's appointment. Our neighbor needs to be there and they need to be there on time. And this only works through technology. So as we've grown over the last few years, we continue to invest in technology. And that's probably the biggest use of capital is technology and then people building the team. About a year and a half ago, we were three people and we're now 21. Wow. Corporately. Yes. In terms of staff of neighbors that you have, how many? Hundreds, thousands. Really? And the great thing for the neighbor is they do it when they want to. So they could have two afternoons this week that they might be available to help a neighbor, help a client. And then they may say, you know, Paige, I'm going to Florida for two weeks with my girlfriends. Awesome. Well, they don't say it to me now. They put it in the app. Or they may be a school teacher and they teach all year. And then on the summers, they love being a neighbor or on the weekends. So I think I mentioned our average neighbor does this a couple times a week. And it's entirely up to them whether they want to be available to take visits or not. I have a wild card for you, Paige. Mm -hmm. You obviously interface with a lot of college students and high school students, and there seems to be a tremendous kind of what do I do with my life over capacity. We've struggled with this idea of kind of a service core. Like, how do we do in the United States? There was a great tradition of the New Deal with the Tennessee Valley Authority and everything. And people always ask me, is there a way to tap kind of restless youth and put them to good purposeful work? There is, or there should be. And unfortunately, neighbor force is not. We do hire kids once they're 21. And the reason for that, the main reason is our clients are looking for maturity. Somebody that maybe has raised a family, that has aging parents, that has the compassion and the empathy. Not to say 
that there aren't younger kids that can, but it's also an insurance thing. Sure. Right? Sending a 17-year-old could be wonderful for both sides, but there are other ways to do that, not through neighbor force, unfortunately. Is the median engagement like changing a light bulb or resetting an iPad or setting up Roku or Apple TV? Like, Walk me through yeah. it. Yeah. So 80% of what we're doing is in the home. Mm-hmm. And of that, the bulk of it boils down to companionship. It's the connection. And that's what makes it so sticky. But if you say, what kinds of tasks are you doing in the home? Number one is making meals. You know, as people get older, it's not that they don't have the food or they don't have the capability. Usually, who wants to make a meal and eat by themselves? So a neighbor can come and they cook together and they'll sit and talk over the meal and clean up the meal. Mm. That's number one. Then it's all those little things around the house, changing the light bulb, cleaning out the back bedroom because the grandkids are coming to stay, loading up stuff for Goodwill, running errands together, yard sales, you name it. And it's, you can't even script it because people will say, you know, what's the number one thing? And we have all kinds of situations. One of our early clients, he lived with his son, but the son traveled. And so he wanted a neighbor to come over once a week and just make sure dad had a good dinner. And the neighbor went the first week and this man was a curmudgeon in his in his recliner and just wouldn't engage. Mm. She came back the next week. It was fine. I mean, he was polite. And that second week she said, hey, let me know about what's going on with the birdhouses out front, all these birdhouses. And he lit up mm. and he said, you know, my wife and I used to love to see the baby birds in spring, but now the squirrels are getting in and, and stealing all the eggs. So she took out her phone. They Googled how to fix it. She came the next week. They fixed the birdhouse. And lo and behold, six weeks later was a nest with five little bluebirds. And so it's it's so hard to describe. It almost seems like Hallmark Channel, what you just described to me. Every day, every single day. That's what it is. How do you, uh, you know, on on the more austere side, how do you establish and keep boundaries? For example, if somebody loves their neighbor and wants to meet the family or they need help with borderline healthcare things. Right. That's a very good question. Now, on the healthcare side, we have a very hard line because once people need help with bathing, feeding, and toileting, that is regulated, it needs trained care. Our neighbors are nothing more than a functional neighbor Mm -hmm. down the street. So we do not do those things. But if you think about what the neighbor wants to do, they're doing this because they are looking for connection and feel good. They're not signing up to do this to change someone's depends anyway. So it's pretty easy to keep that line. But they are very well aware of what that line is. And they're also quick to recommend if a client needs more, they don't want to put them at risk because they care. Mm. So they're going to refer them. So we refer a ton to home care. We work very well with them collaboratively. And then, you know, on the family side, Sometimes the neighbors do become part of a family. So we have one client who's just turned 104. And last week in the family threw a big birthday party and all of the extended family was there and five of the neighbors that visit this lady. She still lives alone in her home and they come over and help her with all kinds of things. So that's okay. We don't really see a lot of disintermediation of people going off the platform. And part of the reason is the neighbors love the flexibility. And again, they're not really in it for the money. So if they go off the platform, all of a sudden, they've got to be accountable to Mrs. Smith. And if they want to go to Florida for a week, who's going to help Mrs. Smith? And the clients, while they think their first neighbor they meet, every time they think it's their favorite until they meet the second neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) They love having a bench because these neighbors aren't available every day, every person. So no matter what time you need a neighbor, and it could be five in the morning to get to a surgery, we have a neighbor available. That's fascinating. In the five minutes or so we have left, Paige. Uh, tell us about this uh, $9 million in Series A financing that you recently took. It was a round led by TransLink Capital. 
You have Northern Virginia selected as your next market expansion you announced last year, but you're already in Dallas. Uh, These are big markets. And are you ultimately looking to go 50 states? Absolutely. That is the vision for NeighborForce is to become a trusted national brand and really to own this space that is neighbors, Mm. right? Nobody else is doing this. And Mm. so uh, our investors wholeheartedly are behind this. They believe it. And we were very, very fortunate in raising that round of capital because you can't pick up the paper without reading what's going on in the venture capital world and lots of bloated valuations back in 2021. Uh, and then that took a big turn. And so lots of people are have, struggling to raise capital. But what we were told is some of the best companies really grow during these periods. And I think this is what we're solving a real problem, right? We're not the next electronic suitcase. We're solving a real human condition problem. And so they are fully supportive of us. And I know it sounds a little mercenary to ask, but where are you in the Venn diagram of subscription economy? I mean, we never could have imagined that I would subscribe to my music library on Spotify or subscribe through Netflix or Amazon Prime amortizes the cost of my retail experience and shipping. Are you, when you're asked in your corner, do you want to be a la carte or subscription? Well, investors love the idea of subscriptions because it's recurring revenue, but it's counter to really what I set out to solve is this on demand. You may need us once or twice this month, and you may not need us again for six months. I think people are fatigued, like you said, with subscriptions. So we do not have that. Now, for people who know they're going to use us regularly, we have some monthly plans, but they can use it one month and cancel it. Hmm. And now, our clients rebook. So 95% of clients that have used us have reused us. Our retention rate is very, very high. Our average client uses us four hours a week. But when we went through the financing and our pitch, four hours a week, it only takes 20,000 clients at four hours a week at $25 an hour to generate $100 million in revenue. Wow. 20,000 clients is nothing. So we're not talking about needing millions and millions of users on an app. In Richmond, Virginia, there are 240,000 people over 65. Now, they're not all our target, but across, and, and 100 million is not our goal. Well, that's I can't that's imagine our short-term goal. Being a South Florida boy, I can't imagine when you're going to take on Miami and Hollandale oh, and the villages and everything. I'm yes. sure everybody brings that up. Oh, absolutely. It's on the list. And I got to ask, so if you were founded four years ago, am I saying 20... 18. 18. Did you have any idea that something like this pandemic could have oh. happened? And I, that's not. a whole other episode, but I can't even imagine. Of all the anecdotes I get of, of people who were left lonely and disoriented and couldn't get visited, that is a curveball that none of us, even doctors who studied medical no. history and the, the great Spanish flu, had. No, they were really blindsided. I was sitting, we finally got an office in the beginning of tw- end of 2019. I was sitting in my office that Friday, March the 13th, I believe it was, when we realized we have to stop doing what we're doing. Because here, and it was devastating. The thing we're doing is helping seniors stay connected in their homes. And now all of a sudden, we can't go in their homes. Neighbors could be bringing the virus. So for two months, we were dead in the water. And because of the vision, that was really hard personally, mercenarily, that's a word. It was also hard. That's the day I would have gotten a big bonus had I stayed in investment banking. And I thought, what have I done for my future? I left this sure thing. And maybe this is the way of God's way of getting rid of all the older people. Because remember, they were dying in droves in the the nursing homes in the beginning. It was terrifying at the very outset. Now, it turns out it actually 
turned into tailwinds for our business because even before the pandemic, we knew the reason our business was so sticky was were these connections that were being made. And after the pandemic, everybody acknowledged isolation is a terrible thing. There's studies that show that isolation is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Our Surgeon General has been outspoken about Absolutely. this. Absolutely. And I always say, if you smoke and you're lonely, you're really in trouble. <laughs> but so once we started back up, it's actually helped our business because people understand it. And, and it's on both sides. It's not just the older adults. Our neighbors, they're looking for that connection. Paige Wilson, founder and CEO of NeighborForce. Uh, it's expanding like a weed and survived the pandemic. And glad to hear that it's actually been a tailwind for you. Is there anything else you're able to tell us other cities outside of Texas? I mean, again, a hugely aging population. It's a 50-state phenomenon. Yes. It's hard because we get inbound requests when people hear about neighbor force all the time. We're trying to be methodical, right? We need to use our capital judiciously. So every market that we choose, we look at a lot of attributes. And one of them, by the way, is volunteerism rates. That marks a strong market. Actually, but each one we're trying to solve a different or prove a different thing. Can we do it in this kind of market and that kind of market outside of the Southeast, et cetera? Well, I hope you come back on the show. Consider yourself a friend of Full Disclosure. Great. Love being here. Full Disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. You could subscribe at link fulldradio.com. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. And of course, you can DM me if you'd like to carry Full Disclosure on your air. If you're just joining us, we were talking to the founder of NeighborForce, the startup that aspires to be an Uber for senior help which reminded me of my 2021 conversation with NPR veteran Kitty Isley, whose own experience caring for her ill parents inspired her acclaimed public radio series 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. Uh, I got to ask you, I'm looking at life expectancy stats since 1900. You know, If you take it back, this is not incidental stuff. You're talking about you know, life expectancy at birth back in 1900 for both sexes, closer to 48 years of age. And at 2021, we're closer to 80 years of age. And this is one of the great, you know, fruits of technology and medicine and vaccinations and whatnot. But it also comes with things such as early onset dementia or things more mundane, such as an enlarged prostate, which you might have to deal with a uh, a parent and and undergarments and various things. And I'm struck, I know this is a long-winded way of saying this, that this has even blindsided the insurance industry, Kitty. I look at how the long-term care industry has done it. It has chalked up massive uh, losses. You look at a company like Genworth or other insurance providers that were selling this stuff to baby boomers, and they vastly underestimated how costly it would be. You nailed it. And to take it back, I mean, I, I kind of come down to like there are four factors that go into this kind of what I, I don't want to call it a crisis, but there are over 50 million Americans right now providing unpaid care for someone over 50. So that's like a sixth of the population is doing this. And it's all kind of behind closed doors. You don't know it. It's in their houses or in institutions. But take the age change, take the um, lifespan we've almost doubled in 100 years. So that's never happened in human history. We now have nearly double the length of life. While we have fewer children, we usually live farther away from each other, in this country at least, and we live longer with more difficult problems that we can kind of manage but maybe not overcome. So on both sides, you have a caregiving deficit or not enough people to kind of provide that kind of care and people who need more care for longer. And as you say, the insurance industry just wasn't wasn't planning on that. Um, So as a nation, 
I feel so strongly we have got to ask ourselves how much how can we care for the people we love? It's on the continuum with childcare. But it's interesting. It's interesting, Kitty, in that that sociologists tell you that Medicare and Social Security are these third rails. They're inviolate. If you do anything to them, older people who vote, you know, I'm thinking about the the representative mm-hmm. Claude Pepper in Florida, the late great Claude Pepper. But young people, you know, if you think about SNAP benefits and benefits for hungry kids and and milk and school lunches, those things are are always jeopardized. Why hasn't that carried over to kind of late stage, almost hospice care, long-term care insurance? Or, or, or if you can explain for me how it even works with Medicare and Social Security. This is a great question. And most of us don't know until we kind of are confronted with it. There's no coverage for any long-term care. Medicare is basically your medical insurance after 65. No one is going to pay except your family to care for mm. someone who can't care for themselves. That's all on you individually. Unless your family and your loved one has less than $2,000 in the bank. So we've kind of said, you know, to ourselves without being really honest about it, we expect you to become almost a ward of the state to have less than $2,000 to your name when you're at your most frail and feeble. And then we'll provide some Medicaid housing for you, some care spaces if we have enough. So we've never come to terms with the fact that people live longer with less health and often need more help, especially with the levels of dementia and Alzheimer's that we're seeing. That's not something that anything in the government covers. So I think people get a big wake-up call when they discover that a parent might not be able to live on their own or need way more help in a house, and you don't know how long it's going to go for. That's the scary part. I mean, you asked about the finances. We, we had my dad at home, you know, all through COVID, and my goal was to keep him safe from a very traumatic end. And we were able to. And in the last couple of months of his life, we did have him move to the facility in our town because he couldn't walk and he couldn't stand. And we'd been lifting him and carrying him for six months. And that just myself and our caregiver just kind of took us, you know, bowled us over. By the time there was a vaccine, we were able to have him come to this place and see him all the time. But even that place was close to $11,000 a month. And he was already on hospice, so I wasn't expecting that he was going to be there for a really long time. But you don't know that. So what's your family's plan when it's you know ten to eleven thousand dollars a month because you need certain level of care? You need a couple of aides to lift you, or continence care, or a complicated medical structure. So multiple pills, multiple times a day, all those things add up. And I am profoundly grateful to the caregivers at that place. I mean, I cannot say enough about the difference between people who are, I think, paid decently and provide, put themselves on the line for your loved ones. That should be a standard. But most people working in care, we've outsourced it to Mm. immigrants and women of color, and their average pay is $11 an hour. That's less than Starbucks, Chipotle, McDonald's, Pizza Hut. But these are the people you care most about in your lives, the people who brought you up for the most part. Why would you want to stiff the people that are taking care of them? And yet most people don't have those kind of assets put aside because none of us were expecting to be paying, you know, $150,000 a year for our old age. Kitty, I was thinking about you and moments where you needed to take a breath and certainly could lean on some of these valued caregivers to maybe go out and get a coffee or or take a run or or I, I don't know how you do <laughs> I didn't run. I should have, but... <laughs> 
but here's it you know it's like a, it's like when you're in the plane and if if there's an emergency in the plane they tell you to put the mask on first before you help the person next to you you need to be strong to be present for your father and to be a fiduciary and to be mindful of of uh medical indications and titrations and everything how did you take care of you not very well to be really honest um and i I'm really wondering, like, did I damage my health? I gained a lot of weight. My hair fell out. That kind of stuff. That's cosmetic. But I didn't really want to do a whole lot of exercise and the kinds of things that the self-help books tell you. You know, one thing I did do was take vacations. And I would line it up with my sister who had a pretty demanding job and two young kids and our caregivers. So I would say, I have got to get away from this for a week, even during COVID, and just go to a beach place and read books not be around people that I could be infected by, but simply not have that duty on my head or on my back. And by duty, this require you end up kind of becoming hypervigilant. You know, every time you hear a, a clink or a, a bump, that could be my dad falling out of his chair, dropping something on his foot, banging, you know, banging a lamp over. I mean, his falls were pretty spectacular and pretty consistent. So there's a sense that you're always kind of on alert, maybe the way a very new parent would feel. And for me, getting that under control was to just step away and save some money and go for a week. And I think I went twice to the beach in the last year, you know, for a week at a time just to breathe. I even checked into a hotel one weekend. Like I literally said, I have got to just, I need like the care. I can, I need some assistance in living. (laughs) I would have happily moved into the place he was staying at at the end, because they did such a good job. And that is a caregiver. I think that's going to be a real issue. You don't know what people are doing to keep things together behind their own family homes. And that's why I think we don't know that 50 million people are doing this. Kitty, when is it going to hit the tripwire of kind of true national emergency? Not to short shrift your experience at all, but you know, you keep hearing about these waves of baby boomers and and Gen X, frankly. I mean, I'm learning this now with my father who had a fall or after, you know, very shortly after he realized he did, he wasn't driving or he left his job and he's, you know, in his mid 80s that his legs just weren't working as well. He mm-hmm. had a fall on the way to the grocery store and I had to scramble with my family and with my brother to figure out how to get him the care he needed and how to not have my mom feel excluded. I mean, this is nowhere near the trauma you faced, but this is increasingly a conversation I'm having with my Gen X contemporaries. And it's going to hit a point where it becomes a true kind of national crisis where people realize that, no, there isn't another line item in Medicare for this. You know, I've been asking myself that too, because I think this is on a continuum with the childcare. We don't, as a country, I think we've always assumed that care is something that happens personally usually done by women, usually done in the home, and therefore not paid. And these are levels of need and care that we haven't seen before. So you're seeing a lot more young women in the 30s, I'd say in their 30s, who are writing and and advocating and demonstrating about the need for better childcare resources, especially after what we've seen happen with COVID, where everybody's got a school from home. This is on the same continuum. It's do we care for the people at the beginning and end of their lives when they can't take care of themselves? That's a Hubert Humphrey litmus test for what government does. And that's the test of a good and moral government. Otherwise, why are we a society if we can't help one another? So when you ask what's the tipping point, I guess we need to ask ourselves, how are we holding our elected officials accountable? I'm not so worried about what's in the defense budget. I am worried that 
there are enough caregivers trained, that they're well paid, and that there will be that generation available should I need help, and that we can all count on some help from each other and from our government, because this is not something that any family can take on by itself. And it's not a one-to-one thing. I think a lot of people could handle, I've used this example before, but try to park a toddler in a car seat and, you know, kid can flip around, but eventually you can get them, get them buckled in. Now try that with a 180-pound person that you have to lift multiple times a day. It's much more dangerous for both of you. And usually for the caregivers, if they're hired, they're very frequently women who are much smaller and it's mm. a very dangerous occupation. So it's not as if one person can just be the full-time caregiver for an older adult. It's, it's a very different um, physical experience as well as a very different emotional experience. What I would like is for us to ask, to really ask, like, everyone says, you know, if there's a burning house, you'd rescue your loved ones. So right. how are we going to make sure that they're safe and comfortable and we don't all have to kind of leave our jobs or go part time or go into debt in order to take care of them? And that's something I think we have to say is a collective choice. It's a, it's a political choice on all of our behalf, not a personal problem that each of us needs to solve by ourselves at home. Kitty, how how aren't there torchbearers for this in D.C. more prominently or the AARP? You know, I asked or, somebody you know, that. Bob, Bob Dole just passed away, the Americans with Disabilities Act. But how come I've, I've so rarely heard about it, but increasingly anecdotally through friends and family? You know, I was just asking a big advocate about that, about why there – I said, who's in Congress that I would call and ask about this? Who's got their finger on elder care issues? And he said, not a lot of people because, frankly, they haven't been able to get much legislation passed. So it's often um, – slightly defeated before it gets introduced. Look how hard it is to just get Build Back Better passed. Right, um, right. So elder care issues or family care issues tend to take short shrift unless you can make a real political case that affect everyone. I think with Bob Dole's work on the Americans with Disabilities Act, a great example of saying this affects all of us and we should be a better society by making sure everyone's included. I think this is an analogy. I'm not sure it's the correct one, but with the AIDS crisis, you know, of 30 years ago, everyone knew or discovered they knew someone in their family who was gay. And suddenly it was not a taboo and a stigma. I mean, it's the quickest political change of heart that we've seen on just about any social issue. So suddenly sure. it was about including everyone and making sure they were cared for. And, you know, look what's happened in 30 years. I wonder if we can't find that political will to campaign on behalf of our elders. And also not to call it something where it's like an entitlement. That's That language always bothers me. These are people who've worked and contributed and paid taxes and raised families and made our country strong. Why wouldn't we want to make sure that they're safe and secure and, and comforted and loved at the, at the lowest, weakest point in their lives? We can do it. We just have to decide that we're going to hold legislators accountable and say we're voting on this. That was Kitty Isley, host of the Public Radio Caregiving Podcast 24-7. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and our host this week, The Robbins School at the University of Richmond. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe and tell a friend. And a shout out to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, the NPR member station serving much of Virginia. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. You know my DMs are always open. And please look for me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. I'm so grateful. Back with you next week. Music